Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, as of recording here, we're just a few more days before Christmas. It's, and this is probably going to come out in January, but we're recording a whole bunch of episodes here in, the, in our little holiday break. But I think last time we talked, you said you're all set, ready to go for Christmas. New Year's too? Yeah, yeah very much so. Actually, you know, for Christmas, I'm all set which relates to part of my where in the world today. Oh. We'll get to that in a minute, but you you are you are all set. Um I'm I'm trying some new things, a gift goodie bag thing, you know, for family. So I've made some vanilla extract to go into this gift bag, you know, like a bottle of it. So far that's done and the next steps I'm going to experimenting with new things. So I've tried one recipe, I'm going to try a different one next for baklava and then rum balls. So we'll see how that all goes. Yeah, cool. That sounds delicious. Before we get to your where in the world, Glenn, just want to mention our Patreon. If listeners want to help uh, support us, you know, keep the podcast rolling, patreon.com slash double loop podcast is uh, how you do it. Or even just do a Google search for Patreon double loop podcast that, that'll get you there as well. One of the things that that supports is our website. So you can head on over there, see a list of our episodes. Um, hopefully we'll talk with our, our webmaster, Michael White, here soon on, on one of our episodes. But it's also got a link to our merchandise store there on that website, webpage. Indeed, yes. And lots of little benefits for those that do contribute as well, such as special content that we've recorded, access to older episodes, and the love and appreciation of Eric and myself. Absolutely. And slowly working on transcripts of all the episodes now, too. We have this uh, this new app that's uh, that's helping us do that. Yeah, that's really cool. All right, Glenn, let's let's move into the game. Sure. Okay. I'm confident you're going to get this. Okay. <laughs> that's always the curse. I've missed two in a row now. Curse. So so here we go. Let's right. let's see. So this country is home to three active volcanoes. It is the fifth most visited country in the world. Okay. The thermometer, batteries, eyeglasses, and the first bank all invented there its capital city is over 2100 years old 2100 years old that would make bc for us almost three thousand dollars a day is thrown into a very famous fountain there which ends up being over at least a million per year from this one fountain alone was ruled okay. by a dictator for 20 years in the 20th century and then immediately followed by a king for 36 days and today is a democratic republic. And the final clue, 13 of 38 Shakespeare's plays are set there. Eric, what country am I, I talking about? I believe this would be Italy. Very good, sir. Yes. Well done. Yes, you have it. First, I'm not sure why, but it was the fountain was the clue that mm. really, that really, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like searching over, searching over my head. Uh, that was the one that really finally, you know, locked it in for me. So, yeah, I thought it might. That, that, that's a, that's a very special fountain, the Trevi fountain, La Trevi. All right. The relationship of this game to Christmas is in preparation for Christmas Eve. I do the Feast of the Seven Fishes, and this is a very Italian thing, although I'm not Italian at all, uh, but I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, in a German and Polish mm. neighborhood, and it was one of the cool things that I, I saw the other Italian families doing, and the Feast of the Seven Fishes, if you don't know what that is, it's this traditional Christmas Eve seafood dinner that people do uh, on the eve of Christmas, 
And the idea is to cook basically fish or seafood seven different ways. And what we like to do is we like to get at least seven different kinds of seafood and cook seven different little courses. And so we'll we'll do mussels and shrimp and crab and lobster and crawfish and a couple of different kinds of fish and everything and just cook them all different ways. And I do this with the kids and we've been doing this now for about 10, 12 years or so. And they really like it. They They love seafood. So it's our big seafood extravaganza the night before Christmas. That sounds awesome. I'm surprised it hasn't come up on a show I watch called Tasting History mm. with uh, just like historical recipes from hundreds, if not thousands of you go. But uh, it sounds exactly what that, uh, what that show would, would eventually cover. So mm. uh, very cool. Yeah, the Feast of the Seven Fishes. So we have a very special guest again here uh, this week. So let's bring her into the show. Beth Grounds, welcome to the W Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So Bethany Grounds comes all the way from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, and she is a lecturer at the university there. And I had the opportunity to see one of her presentations at the IAFS. So we're continuing our speaker series from the IAFS, which was a treasure trove of great presentations. I mean, everyone came from around the world there to present their premier research. Bethany was no exception. And she had this really cool presentation on basically matching and super matchers and comparing different sort of matchers across different disciplines. And uh, I just thought, well, that's perfect for the show. We can talk about matching stuff. So Bethany, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So Beth, the standard question for all of our guests on the W podcast, how did you end up falling into fingerprints? Everyone kind of has their own unique story. So what's yours? I'm actually a psychologist. So I did my PhD in psychology. I was originally interested in how forensic examiners learn certain kinds of statistics during their work, like how fingerprint examiners learn the frequency of minutiae or face examiners learning just how rare scars are. I then went on to do two postdocs, one in the US and one in the UK. And during that time, I was kind of interested in what makes forensic experts unique, what makes them special, how do they do what they do, what are they doing cognitively and perceptually um, that is kind of giving them an advantage. Uh, And I ran a few studies during that time comparing experts with novices, and that's kind of how I landed up where I am today in kind of the intersection of quite a few different forensic disciplines. Was there anything specific that after starting in psychology that kind of pointed you towards these forensic topics? Yeah, I was really passionate in a couple of undergraduate topics I did in forensic psychology that talked about, you know, wrongful convictions, things like Mm. bias in the criminal justice system. Um, And I realized just how under-researched this area was, you know, forensic psychology has only been around for a couple of decades and there's still so many cool unanswered research questions out there. May I ask where you did your postdoc? Yeah, um, I did my first postdoc in Arizona, actually, uh, and my second one in England, in Exeter. And would that have been at Arizona State University with Michael Sachs and that whole yes, group there? it was. Yeah. yeah, it was. Okay. That makes sense. That's where I am right now. So. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm in the, well, I'm closer to the ASU West campus, oh. uh, just the side of town I'm on, but uh, yeah, my my. Wife, sister, brother, and dad graduated from uh, from ASU. Oh wow! 
before COVID, I worked on West Campus. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah, that's, uh, beautiful out there. It's just, just uh, I don't know, five, ten minute drive from my. Oh wow. From my from where I am right now. Small so, world. It is a, definitely a small world, especially in this field. Uh, yes. Uh, of forensics, that's really cool. Go figure. Yeah, and, and a great environment too. Uh, yeah. Those professors there are very interested in these questions and learning yeah. about these topics, but that's that's great. Well, would you mind giving a bit of a summary of the paper that you presented at the IAFS? So during my postdocs, I collected, like I said, a bunch of studies where I collected novice data to also compare to expert data. And I started seeing lay people in my novice samples that were performing around the same level of experts, like not a lot of people, but a couple of people that were kind of reliably outperforming the norm in many different visual comparison or pattern matching tasks, from fingerprints to faces to firearms, uh, even artificial prints that we created in the lab ourselves. So I started seeing these um, people that we've affectionately started calling super matches. And when we ran that, we ran another study that was prior to the one that I presented at IAFS. Basically, we found a group of people that are really, really good, better than normal people without any forensic science training or experience that were good at pattern matching tasks across a whole test battery of tasks. Uh, and then once that paper came out, I, I'm always left with the question, well, what about experts? Uh, are forensic scientists super matches or uh, are they, do they have an advantage in another way? So I basically ran another study where I recruited experts and got them basically recruited examiners from three different disciplines, so fingerprints, faces, and firearms, and I got them to complete a battery of pattern matching tasks just to kind of see what the relationship was between those tasks and if there was some kind of a generalizable ability that we also see in these super matches. So for example... Does a fingerprint examiner also outperform novices in face matching? And is there a bit of an assumption there that the fingerprint examiner is good at what he or she does and probably certainly better than, than a layperson, I would assume? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of decades of research now showing that, you know, fingerprint examiners are better than what they do at someone just off the street. Psychology has decades and decades of research looking at what makes experts special, how people become experts, and we do know that about forensic examiners in several different disciplines, including fingerprints. We covered all that when we talked about the Jason Tangan article from like six, seven, eight years ago. I'd have to look up what episode that actually is, you know, for listeners to go back and you know, hear our discussion of that back in the past. Also, when I was reading your paper, I had noticed that there were lots of references uh, that I recognized. So during my thesis work, one of my chapters looks at how expertise develops. I noticed a lot of your references to Erickson and all the work that he's done and other experts of experts. And, and I've always found this area pretty fascinating yeah. because it's just such a, a rich area when you look at like chess experts yeah. and how they recognize patterns. It all comes down to patterns, whether it's music or chess or anything. It's always recognizing the patterns and how many hours of just repetition that takes to recognize those patterns. Yeah, that, that research is super fascinating. And that's where I started off some of the research questions that I had with forensic experts. 
the expertise literature spans everything from like what makes athletes special, how do they perform, to musicians, to you guys. It's really fascinating research. Right. So then when you did these comparisons, is there any hope for me to become a firearms examiner? Does my years of fingerprint expertise mean that I could jump into firearms comparisons and start comparing tool marks or handwriting or other forensic patterns? <laughs> <laughs> that is a very complicated question. Um, but our data, our data showed basically a hierarchy of expert performance. So we had these three groups of experts, like I said, from faces, fingerprints, and, and firearms. And then we got a novice sample as well. Um, we basically showed this hierarchy where fingerprint examiners outperformed everybody, including novices and face and firearms examiners in fingerprint matching. But they also had like a kind of generalization of their expertise where fingerprint examiners also outperformed novices in face and firearms matching. So I wouldn't recommend that you go start kind of matching <laughs> firearms and looking at all that because firearms examiners will still be better than you because we had this kind of domain specific effects where experts in their discipline were always best at the specific task they were trained in. But you might outperform novices in it, but I still would probably not recommend you do it because a firearms examiner would probably still beat you. So it would tend to suggest then it's more than just matching, that the, what is happening here is more than just seeing things that are similar and recognizing a match. There's probably more to it than that. Yeah. The research here is still really early, but our current theory is that there's kind of natural skill and then there's some kind of an addition to expertise. So training is something you add on top to kind of boost performance even further. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we talked about, not only in the episode that Eric mentioned when the Tangan paper had been published, but also I think you and I discussed briefly at, at the conference, was whether it was Tangan's paper or the COM papers, K-A-M papers on handwriting experts versus novices. It seemed that you know, lay people, if you show them relatively easy matches, they can make the match. Most people can see things that match. And we've been doing these puzzles in Highlights magazine since we were children, right? Find the match, find the matching images. Yeah. But what it seems pretty clear from these studies is what really is the hallmark of the expert is to recognize when the differences actually matter. Because when you show these groups, lay people and experts, very similar looking, close non-matching images it's knowing which differences are significant to not make the false match. And that was really evident in Jason Tangan's paper as well as the comm papers. And I assume maybe you saw similar things or have not looked at that yet. I haven't looked at that specifically, but I do know that research. And one of the things that we know pretty reliably across multiple forensic disciplines is that forensic experts tend to avoid the errors that novices make, particularly on difficult non-match trials, like you were saying. So when two things do look really, really similar, but they're in fact, you know, the ground truth is that they don't come from the same source. That is a kind of decision that novices typically jump to and say match, whereas experts are really good at avoiding that specific error. Well, now that's interesting because you say avoiding the error. So is it exactly that? Is it the cultural thing where they're just more conservative and maybe have a higher threshold for the decision? Or is it something that they're observing that's part of their expertise that alerts them that this is a false match? 
That's actually a really interesting question. I don't know any research that has looked at differentiating those two things. We do know that experts tend to be more conservative in their decision making, but I don't think we really know whether it's that they are conservative and there is something that they're specifically like doing perceptually or cognitively differently. I think it's one of the many kind of unanswered open research questions in this area. Sure. You'd mentioned the the false idea, the false positive. I noticed that your graphs here looks like the comparison that you did between these different groups focused in on the sensitivity measurement. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason that you chose sensitivity versus specificity or false positive rate or positive predictive value or like any of the other ways, you know, the the differences in performance. I mean, sometimes we often just look at like basic accuracy out of 100%. But in this task, we looked at sensitivity specifically to kind of look at um, performance independent of response bias, because we do know that experts do typically show different response bias patterns to novices. So we kind of wanted to look at performance kind of independent of response bias, if that makes sense. And then sensitivity is kind of focuses on that, but the other ones don't? The other ones do. I mean, like false alarm rates, miss rates, things like that. They're all getting at slightly different research questions. I don't want to get too jargony, but I've done some work on the low prevalence effect where we look at how the rarity of certain trial types increases Mm. false alarms because we're looking for the errors that are being made. But here we were interested in kind of like natural performance because we're comparing these like novice and expert groups, we wanted to make it independence of response bias. I'm I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yes. You know, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. It does. The reason I bring it up is just from an examiner viewpoint of, you know, where I'm sitting from, sensitivity is kind of one of the things I don't care about. But that's coming from, from my viewpoint of what's important to me as a practicing examiner. Not that it's wrong to measure that because it focuses in your research on the specific direction. But that's kind of the, I don't know, the the basis for my question. Yeah, we chose sensitivity primarily because we're going to like publish this in a psychology journal. And that's the kind of thing psychologists like to see. I do know examiners often prefer different kind of like, you know, looking at the nitty gritty decisions that were actually made. Um, We chose like we chose sensitivity for a whole bunch of reasons. But like some of these tests, for example, the firearms test was slightly easier than the fingerprint comparison test. And when we kind of use sensitivity, we can try and standardize those things as best as possible, if that makes sense. You know, actually, that was going to be my next question is, you know, one of the big challenges I would just assume going into something like this would be the differences in difficulty across these different tests, the comparison work itself, but it's just in the sample set that you've selected for the tests. It's possible to put together a very difficult or a very easy test for any of these. So how'd you go about normalizing the relationship between, or at least the relative difficulty of these different tests? Yeah, we developed these tests slightly differently to how I would typically run a study just with novices. So we created from different databases of faces, fingerprints, firearms, etc. We did this thing where we essentially select based on pilot testing. We select trials that are specifically designed to discriminate top performers. So it's basically looking at, I can't remember what it's called. It's like item to test correlation. You essentially look at how well each trial predicts above median performance of individuals. 
Yeah, Eric, did we talk about that on another podcast, didn't we, with some of CSAFE's research? Oh, boy. The old question of have we talked about it before, that's that's a tough one. Um, right. Right. Anyway, that's some standard statistics to be able to yeah. select the, the proper trials for normalization. Yeah, right? but we specifically selected trials that were hopefully going to discriminate like really people that do really, really well. So you can design tests that are really good at differentiating like the norm, the average, like people in the middle of a normal distribution. We design these tests to try and best discriminate people that we know are really, really good. So whether that's experts or super matches. Right using fancy statistics. Bethany, if I remember correctly, which I may not, it was this presentation where you had a unique test, a test that none of these participants would have been exposed to, right? They were forced to do some task that probably none of them had ever done. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a comparison that was not in any real domain. It was almost like you had made up a matching type of test. Yeah, we have something that we call the novel object matching test. In my PhD, we basically by hand made a bunch of prints that were like from the same or different patterns using potatoes. Um, and we kind of standardized those images. They're kind of like a proxy for a fingerprint matching task or something. There's different features in them that discriminate one print from another. It's kind of a clean measure of people's pattern matching performance, like their innate ability, because I'm assuming no one um, plants carved potatoes at crime scenes very regularly. <laughs> so, yeah, we have this kind of clean measure of their ability. Yeah, I thought that was a really novel approach because... It, it, again, it just normalizes everything. It looks at something that you have probably never had to compare before. So obviously there could be no expertise there. What is the kind of thing a human starts off with if they've never compared anything in this domain? What I found fascinating about that, and I know Eric and I have talked about this on another episode, is we, we were talking about a group of forensic examiners, at least here in the States, that compare video images or pictures or images of things. And sometimes they're asked to compare things they've never compared before. So they might be asked to compare knuckle prints, like creases on the back of your hand, or vehicles in photographs, you know, a vehicle from the crime scene versus a, a vehicle photograph, like a, a standard to compare against. Or <laughs> literally in the episode, maybe even in a child pornography ring, they might see a male's genitalia in the image, in the crime scene image, and then have to compare it to a standard. So they might be comparing things that they don't really have this expertise in comparing. So how does that relate to those tests that you did? And what are your thoughts about forensic, we'll call them experts, quote unquote experts, who are comparing things that they've not done a lot of repetition on comparing in their past? Sure. Yeah. So we saw in our novel object matching tests, um, forensic examiners in every discipline that we recruited from, so face, fingerprints and firearms, outperformed novices in this task, essentially looking at stimuli that they'd never seen before. So the theory here is that they are learning some kind of strategy between comparing things they've never seen before and they're still outperforming someone that you just, you know, would drag off the street and ask to do the same task. So theoretically, forensic examiners who do, you know, outperform the norm in other tests of fingerprint matching with expertise in other areas, theoretically, I guess the research might suggest uh, their expertise could generalize from one task to another. 
but not as good as someone who does that regularly. So the repetition, the training is still really important. That's why I said, you know, I wouldn't recommend the fingerprint examiner go start comparing firearms. There is something that training in the specific discipline does boost performance a little bit. So while there is some kind of generalization of skill, I don't know, whatever strategy they're learning to use, there's something there, but I still... It would depend on, you know, the exact stimuli they're looking at and their exact expertise and what discipline they're trained in. And that makes sense. Although in the in the States, you know, we have a, a legal admissibility test that they need to in some way demonstrate yep. that they can actually do this accurately. And yep. that was one of our, my big criticisms in that episode where Eric and I talked about is you're comparing something for the first time. How do you really know how much variation can occur in yeah. this sort of pattern or what the incidence of close non-matching is. I mean, if you've never really looked at this thing, how could you possibly know that? Yeah, and I think that's a pretty valid criticism. I think it would come down to a case-by-case basis. What exactly are they being asked to compare? Do they have expertise in that thing? Yeah. Yeah. With these different groups that you have, were there any participants in your studies that belonged to more than one group? Um, I did ask that and no, everyone seemed to mostly, I think we might've excluded people if they reported being across more than one discipline, but you guys are probably the, um, quote unquote experts in this, but to my knowledge, I don't think lots of fingerprint examiners do other tasks and face examiners don't really in lots of jurisdictions. Is that right? Well, standard fingerprint answer. Uh, it depends. (laughs) Um, I think from, from what I've seen face comparison is really gaining steam. And as agencies begin to do more work there, they're looking at who can we train, who would be easy to train and how to do this. Sometimes they just look over and see a group of fingerprint examiners and say, all right, you guys, guess what? You get to do something new. I think there are a small group of of people that have cross-trained in fingerprints and firearms. It's definitely not large as far as I know. And I think that was reflected in our sample because I would have to go back and look at the disciplines people reported working in. But I actually don't think we had anyone that reported any cross-discipline work. I would have to go back and check my data, though. I I think the biggest overlap would be between fingerprints and footwear. There's quite a few agencies where the footwear work is relatively infrequent. So it's just kind of tacked onto uh, the fingerprint unit because there's not enough to keep a full unit just doing footwear work so they can cross-train their folks there. That would be fascinating to study people, like a good sample of people to test their skill in shoe and fingerprint. That would be really cool. Exactly. That's Now I'm curious, if you do fingerprints and footwear, does that make you better than people that do just fingerprints when going to uh, face or firearms? That is a fascinating research question, and I would love to do a study to that. <laughs> Hey, just just put me in the thanks section. I will do. I'll put you in the acknowledgments. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Glenn was mentioning this earlier, right? The recognizing the pattern, recognizing the repetition. In my mind, it's kind of what's the trick here? What matters for a comparison? What matters is a similarity? What matters is the difference? But it kind of comes down to like, what's the trick? And what I guess what I'm curious about is that it seems like step one in all of this is learning what's the trick. So I, I was actually a participant in... One study, I'm not sure which one it was, but it involved the potato prints that you were talking about. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And I spent the whole time trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, what, what's the trick here? Like, what is the thing that matters? And as I was going through, I, you know, I kind of like evolve of, okay, maybe this is it or maybe that's it. 
And, you know, it, it seems to be very dependent on how fast you can figure out what the trick is in the set of samples that you're looking at. And then you've got that knowledge going forward for the rest of them. Or just happening to know it ahead of time. Even though you haven't don't have lots of practice, you know the thing. Like for chess, yeah. right? If you know the pattern that you're looking for, then at least in the simple chess puzzles, you know, you, you can do fairly well. What's what's kind of your thoughts on, you know, being somewhat skill related, but the big hump is just knowing the trick. Yeah, so I think there's a difference here between what experts do and what people with natural skill super matches do. So I draw on some research and face recognition in a lot of my work, you know, super recognizers, people that are really good at faces, those guys. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So I have some colleagues that have done some amazing work that basically show there's roots to like superior performance in face recognition and face matching. There's the expert route that is learning specific strategies to kind of compare samples or faces in their case kind of feature by feature, slow down. I mean, if you're looking at fingerprints, the example would be like breaking down the images and looking for matching minutiae between two samples and things like that. So forensic examiners typically gain a superior performance by learning these strategies, kind of like you're talking about, looking for the similarities, looking for the differences. But something about super recognizers and we think that super matches might be doing as well is somehow just looking at them holistically and making really fast snap judgments that mean they're accurate quite a lot of the time. There's something that they can do about it. It's like having high IQ. They were just born with this ability. So your question is kind of, there's kind of two answers to it. It's how to you know, experts get, forensic examiners get good and how do, like, how do people who are born with this skill and I think, yeah, okay. we need to understand both sides of the equation there. Yeah, that's interesting. Malcolm Gladwell talks about thin slicing and this ability of experts, special experts, to be able to look at something and instinctively in their gut know the answer. This, as you yeah. call it, instinct. They're in fraction of a second, they're able to, to know this answer, match or non-match. And maybe while that's impressive... I think I would rather have the more thoughtful expert who's looking at diagnostically relevant characteristics who can then later explain how they reached that conclusion because that is much more critical, I think, in our field. The ability to say, well, what were the data you relied upon? What were the diagnostically relevant characteristics to reach this conclusion as opposed to instantly looking at images, even if they're getting the right answer, and then just not being able to explain what it was that led them there? I mean, I can, I'm sure you can appreciate that from a criminal justice standpoint. For sure. And, and I don't necessarily disagree with you there, but it's actually really interesting. A lot of psychological research shows that humans actually typically have what's known as poor metacognition. So basically understanding how we reach decisions. Right. Yeah, right. Even experts typically don't really always know how they reach decisions. They can come up with like post hoc justifications. Good point like diagnostic criteria and all that stuff. So I don't disagree with you. I would probably prefer like someone who's actually taking their time to look through a sample if, if I were accused of a crime. But when we're talking about, you know, do forensic examiners understand what goes in the, to their decisions, a lot of research would actually say probably not. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, that, that's a really fascinating concept because Eric and I, we talk about documentation and the idea is 
you know, yeah. Eric and I, we've even joked about this, how often that you looked at something, you know, it's the match, but then the documentation is all about, as she said, sort of justifying the decision post hoc. Yeah. But ultimately, are those the actual characteristics that you really relied on to get there? Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. It's a great point. Yeah, we are planning on doing some eye tracking studies in the future with both experts and Ooh, super. Fun. Yeah, I know. I'm really excited to see if we can kind of answer some of these questions. What information are experts versus super matches actually looking at? Do super matches focus on different characteristics? Do examiners actually look at characteristics and those are the characteristics they'd later say they're basing their decision on. There's there's so many cool unanswered questions. Well, you need to get Eric in one of your studies. Eric and I have done online little assessments between him and I, <laughs> how we approach things. And Eric's one of those eagle eyes. He's, I would love to have you guys. Yeah, he sees things I don't see. Here's the thing. <laughs> well, that's that's true, but Here's the thing, Glenn, you know, after doing the potato matching thing, mm. I was not a super matcher on the potato <laughs> matching. Were you not? Interesting. So this is why I keep coming back to this knowing the trick, right? So maybe, maybe I could be if I just, if someone just taught me, here's how you do potato matching. <laughs> oh, okay. And then boom, you know. I don't even know the trick with the potatoes and I'm, I made them. Exactly. So, because like Glenn, looking at the these graphs here from, uh, you know, comparing the within domain versus outside domain experts, you've obviously had a lot of practice comparing fingerprints and a couple other forensic disciplines as well, but you've never done firearms comparisons full time, right? No, 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 no. But just from being in this discipline, working at the next office over, you know what they do. Like, you know, yeah. you're looking for these striations to, to match up and you can kind of, you know, at least fake your way through that. Right. And then, and those certain things don't matter because they're class characteristics. So I would avoid making decisions right. on class characteristics and focus on those that would be more randomly acquired. And I've taken a 40-hour class on face comparisons, but I'm by no means an expert on it. But I know that the trick to, of what to start right. looking for. And so I, I, you know, I think that kind of explains part way of why you get this better than novice, but not as good as an expertise. You don't have the practice, but yeah. you've sat next to these people for years and you've talked to them and, or you just, since you work in forensics, you have an interest in forensics and you've read or taken some generic classes on these topics. So, you know, that gets you a whole lot more. I'm not sure if it's, if it's, just by being a good comparer or that you've learned the step one of the trick. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it kind of comes back to the thing I was saying before about two roots to expertise. I think forensic examiners learn the trick, whatever it is, but right. super matches. I mean, if you look at the distributions in my paper, if you've got it in front of you, you can see even in fingerprint comparison, firearms comparison, the little yellow dots are novices. And some of them are performing, you know, within the same range as the experts yeah. within their field. So there's, there's something they're doing. I doubt they're aware of it, to be honest. They have the trick. I don't know what the trick is, but they, they have it somehow. And if we can understand that... We could maybe add it into forensic training and, I don't know, further increase the performance of examiners. I wonder if that's a, it'd be an interesting post-study interview process. You know, yeah. what, what were you doing during these comparisons? Yeah. And that is... Um, and specific to the people that did well. The people who did poorly... <laughs> Chuck them out. Don't need them. <laughs> who cares? I was on my phone. I was checking Twitter. Yeah, X. But if they're describing 
well, I look for, you know, this next to this. How did you know to do that? Yeah, I mean, the research on metacognition would say they shouldn't really be able to tell you how. And we can probably get those answers from things like eye tracking. Uh, true. But I think it'd be really interesting to see how things like eye tracking data actually matches up to what people are saying that they're doing. Mm. But still, if they are able to basically describe what an expert is doing, because they, they saw a YouTube video on how to do it, you know, just by coincidence, then... Theoretically, unanswered question. Very interesting one, I think. Yeah. So that answered one of my questions that I had for you was, how would we be able to use this research in an important way? And that, I, I think, I actually really answers that very nicely. It, it's almost the real benefit is less about the experts, but studying the novice who somehow out of the gate has, as Eric has put it, learned the trick and then using that as a training device in some way for experts. So one of my other big critical questions was where we are today and in forensic science, there's all this talk about AI and, of course, computer algorithms and fingerprints. We use APHIS systems, databases. There's a lot of talk about offloading some of these tasks, these matching tasks, uh, to computers and algorithms and AI. So how important would this skill really be in the future for super matchers or finding examiners who are really good at matching when maybe the other skills that might become more important in our field will be things like articulating the match or being able to problem solve or critically think through crime scenes or evidence processing or good communicators to jurors and lay people and attorneys report writing, attention to detail, all these other things that are very important skills. And maybe matching is not so important if that gets pushed towards computers or algorithms. Thoughts there? Have had you had a chance to ever think about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so there's a few things here. We're not there yet. Even some of the most recent like face recognition research shows that really top performance is kind of a wisdom of the crowd effect when decisions between AI and top performing humans are combined. Mm. So we're not there yet to start with, but if we could combine the judgments of AI and top performing humans, we could probably hit like kind of a sweet spot of optimum performance. There's another part here about who is going to testify in court, which is one reason that I think humans are still going to be important in these kind of roles for a long time. AI, as I'm sure lots of people know, many of your listeners probably do, AI is generally black boxes. They can't testify in court. We don't know how they make decisions, even if experts don't know how they can make decisions. At least they can educate fact finders about things like procedure, bias mitigation techniques, the value of the evidence. And I, AI reached a decision um, to do with samples in a court case, like who are you going to cross-examine? The coder of the algorithm, the examiner who put samples into the AI. Um, I think there are things that humans can do that AI probably will not be, hopefully, to do. And I think there's also another part here where if we can learn what makes people that are naturally good at this task, in theory, they could have levels of things like things you're mentioning, attention to detail and problem solving. And you could train them to be good report writers, good, you know, educators of a jury and things like that. Mm. Okay. One of my last questions is, Bethany, are there exercises or skills or tasks that people can do to exercise their matching muscle? Is there anything in the literature that helps someone become better at matching? 
So I've got bad news for your listeners. If they want to train to be a super matcher, they kind of can't really because the theory, at least currently, is that it's a natural ability that you're born with. Mm. Um, We know similar things from face recognition research. But you could theoretically train to reach similar levels of performance to experts. We already know that people in disciplines like fingerprints, firearms, face examination, they typically train and do lots of training and they outperform novices. So they have trained to be, if not super matches who are naturally gifted in it, they've probably learned different strategies and techniques to kind of gain an advantage in visual comparison. And one way that you could essentially fast track your performance uh, in pattern matching visual comparison is by training with kind of immediate ground truth feedback. And the feedback is really important here to ensure that you're learning like the right strategies and not the wrong ones. So a bit of a mixed bag there. So you can train to be better, but you can't train to be a super matcher, if that answers your question. Yeah, it's like training to be a good athlete, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean I'm going to be in the NFL. You're either, exactly. you're either born for, <laughs> with that sort of level of skill or you're not. Yeah, you're either Usain Bolt or not. I can train as much as I want. I will never be Bo Jackson. So conversely on that topic, I'm sure there are people who are listening who at one point have attempted to train trainees. I know I've done it. I know Eric's done it. And Mm. we have all seen in our field just people that don't get it. And unfortunately, after sometimes a year or even two of attempted training, they eventually just fail out of the program. Is it the kind of thing that Certain people will just never get there. I mean, it's the opposite of the supermatcher. They just lack whatever to do that. Or we didn't stick with them long enough. And if we had just kept going six more months or a year, then they would have kicked in and there it would have been. Yeah, I mean, we know that people like to do things that they're good at. That's very intuitive psychology. So people, if they're good at it, they, you know, some people, some supermatchers might select into a career in forensic science. On the flip side, you know, all of these things, face recognition, visual comparison ability, they're distributions. So you've got people at the top end of the distribution, super matches, super recognizers, and then you do have people at the other end of the distribution. So in face recognition, people with prosopagnosia, you know, face blindness, they can't even really see faces. So, you know, if you do see forensic trainees that aren't getting the training it it, theoretically they could be further down the end of the spectrum and then other people and maybe they just don't have any kind of natural skill oh that sounds mean but they yeah it's a tough question though that we've all had to deal with because this is a person and you've hired that person and maybe you really like that person but you just see them fail time after time again in the training program and at what point you know, do you let that person go to start a very lengthy process all over again with a new trainee, which is you have to be fair to that trainee, because if you keep pushing them for another couple of years and they are still not getting it, you know, where is that safe cutoff point to know, look, if you're not getting it by this point, you're not going to get it. And that that's something that we don't quite know yet either. Yeah, I agree. And I agree. It is really tough. That's like from on a personal level, that would be a really tough decision to make as a manager or a trainer. Is there any way to really know what that cutoff point is? Six months, nine months, a year? At what point is it? Is there anything that you could point towards literature wise or this? If you're not getting it by this point, you're not going to get it. 
Yeah, I don't know if there is. Uh, I don't know if there is a cutoff point. I do know that there is some research done by a colleague of mine who actually works with Jason Tangen. Her name is Rachel Seerst, and she's done some work on how fingerprint expertise develops over the course of like from one month training through to 12 months training. And she shows that, or that study in particular shows that people who are good at the start of one month kind of are still better than everybody at 12 months. So there's kind of like still a correlation Mm. between their natural performance. So if you're talking about like when is a cutoff, I don't know if the literature can provide you the direct answer because that is a hard one to answer, but you know, probably around the six, 12 month mark, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I know when I've done tests with trainees and novices, lay people and experts, I, I did tend to find, I mean, although it, it's arbitrary in where I was using my cutoffs, I mean, I, it seemed to be that within six months that there was a, a performance, a level of trainee performance that was vastly superior than lay people. I mean, six months you would learn some of those basic tricks that Eric did talk about, which characteristics are diagnostically relevant, you know, how to avoid yeah. certain things. You still hadn't maybe softened some of the edges of your distributions. You hadn't smoothed out that curve yet. But it seemed that you could begin to see that expertise forming in that six-month to a year phase. Yeah, that sounds like a good ballpark estimate to me. In the expertise literature, I think there's some like famous pop psychology quote that says, you know, it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert, which is frankly bullshit. There's no specific number of hours, but around the six to 12 month mark, I would say would probably be around right for what we see in the literature about how people develop skills and training works. But I think a really cool thing here is if you could understand what, like we understand how to make, well, we understand part of the ways we can make people good at things like fingerprint matching. We don't understand what people that are naturally good, what they do. So if we can reverse engineer and work out what they're doing, what information they're using, what they're looking at, how they're doing these things cognitively and perceptually, we could maybe even fast track performance of other people who aren't naturally gifted in that task. If we could train people to do what supermatches are doing innately, I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I, and to me, that's probably the real nugget in this research. Why this research is important is it could assist us in our training programs. Yeah, I, that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Well, Glenn, if you remember, uh, about six months in is when I met you. Yeah. That first training class. Really? That, where you were the instructor, I was about six months in. Yeah, that's about right. Now, on the opposite side, I would... I'd be actually really afraid of some sort of test, you know, that focuses in on comparison ability. Honestly, I wouldn't want to work in a unit with just Mm -hmm. me, Mm -hmm. right? With just a bunch of clones of me uh, or just a bunch of super matchers. If someone can be good or really good at at fingerprint comparisons, but they're fantastic at photography or working with computers or they're the APHIS whiz or I can write manuals or be the glue that holds a unit together. Give me a unit that is this variety of all these skills where there's someone that is really good, is like the best at all these different things. I can handle not everyone being the best pairer that there is. I take your point, but at the same time, would you want a pilot to fly your plane that had bad eyesight? Like, why not try and recruit people that are performing as well as they can? Yes, I guess it's more so that a 
and it may just be the, the specifics of those two different disciplines where pilot definitely needs to be the you know, pilot. And maybe I just don't know enough about pilots, but unit does so many other things besides compare. To take that analogy, the pilot's not the one necessarily who are also charting out their path, right? They're not the one plotting yeah. out that. They're definitely not the one serving me drinks on the plane, and I want someone who specializes <laughs> in that. They're not the one fixing the plane uh, and doing some of the maintenance checks. I, I, I take both your points. Within that special set of skills, maybe the person at the terminal, yeah, we want a good matcher sitting yeah. at the terminal, but there are so many other skills that are also important to a forensic unit that if you just do the one, if you focus on that, you might be missing out on these other aspects of forensic science that are critically important to the survival of a unit as well. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really good point. No, I agree. And I think that's another point to why I don't think AI is ever going to fully replace humans in these roles. Sure. Also, I'm not sure I would want the person serving drinks to fly a plane either. Just as a side <laughs> note. <laughs> that's where the analogy breaks yeah. down. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, so we've mentioned a few times now further research, next steps. You know, what are the immediate next steps, Beth, that you're going to be focused on here? From this research? The immediate next steps, publish the paper would be nice. Um, <laughs> no, on a, on a more serious note, I am following some of this research up, trying to work out, I've said this a few times now, but essentially work out what it is that super matches are doing. Are they doing the same things that super recognizes? Do they do it really fast? Do they gain greater advantage when they're slow, um, which is something we know about experts? And I'm looking at the relationship between visual comparison as a natural ability and other abilities like working memory, cognitive control, kind of effort, and even personality factors like conscientiousness. What kind of other perceptual personality cognitive traits predict superior performance in pattern matching tasks? What are things that we could include in a test battery? Down the line, I am planning to do things like these eye tracking tests where we look at what people are looking at, both experts and super matches, as well as getting them to verbally articulate what they think they're doing. But at the moment, I'm kind of looking at, yeah, those relationships between other psychological abilities and how well they predict pattern matching performance. Well, looking forward to, well, the publication yeah. of this next paper, but uh, but all of those other ones coming out down the road, Great. too. Thank you. Just fascinating to dig through all this. And the paper that you have published, uh, why don't we give a quick plug here? Uh, why don't you give the, the title, yeah. the name, and where it can be found and all that for any listeners? And if they want to get a copy, where would they look for a copy of it? Or can they reach out to you? Ah, uh, Yeah, I mean, anyone is more than welcome to reach out to me. But the paper is called Match Me If You Can, uh, Evidence <laughs> for a Domain General Visual Comparison Ability. It's published in Psychonomic Bulletin and Review, and I'm pretty sure it's open access. Oh, okay. So anyone can just Google Match Me If You Can and download it. No, that comes up with a movie, but... <laughs> we'll put a link in the podcast episode for uh, listeners. Sure, thank you. So your, your email is in the paper. Do you want to provide that in the show as well? or My email is uh, bethany.grounds at canterbury.ac.nz. B-E-T-H-A-N-Y dot grounds, so G-R-O-W-N-S. Well, Beth, thank you so much for coming on, on our show and for answering all of our questions, all of Glenn's questions probably twice because he probably asked all the same ones <laughs> at the conference down in Australia. 
we didn't get a chance to talk that much. Uh, I, oh, no, you didn't? No, I saw her at the presentation, and then I maybe saw saw you in passing at, at another point, but just for whatever reason, yeah. I we never really got a chance to really chat. I just basically said, hey, I'll reach out to you. Come on the podcast. And that was kind of the last time we chatted. It was a hectic conference. Yeah, for sure. Bethany, there was a costume party Wednesday at the conference. What was your costume? I was an asteroid belt. So I put a bunch of stars and planets on a belt and wore that with a dress. <laughs> Classic. Very good. Excellent. Awesome. Very awesome. Eric and I have been talking about costumes a little bit lately. Oh, yeah. It's hard to come up with a good costume. I'm actually I've been searching for the name of a bunch of people in New Zealand that were dressed up as Pac-Men at that oh, yeah. conference thing. So if any of your listeners were at IFs and were dressed as Pac-Man on the Wednesday, shoot me an email, please. Now, were they just dressed as Pac-Man, like Mrs. Pac-Man, or were they as the yeah. ghosts? Uh, I think they were all just Pac-Man. Oh, I saw a ghost. I saw ghosts. Okay. Oh, maybe there were maybe there were ghosts with them, too. Yeah, there was a theme going on. Yeah, it was very cool. I think some of the best. Um, what did you go as, by the way? Well, I forgot that there was a costume <laughs> party. So I went into the Chinatown and my son and I, we just oh, yeah. grabbed quickie little masks. But I wore a face mask all night and nobody knew it was me. This is a theme with me is nobody knows it's me. That's great. Glenn incognito. Nice. I thought Glenn was going to reveal all of a sudden that he was either Inky Blinky Pinky or, or Clyde. No, the Mandalorian. No. There, oh, right. <laughs> there you go. You were the Mandalorian. There was a great Mandalorian costume there, but that was not me. But not you. Oh, okay. There was. I think I remember that one. Yeah. It was really good. There was some there was some stellar costumes there. Forensic scientists know how to costume party. I'll I'll give them that. Yeah, we do. Yeah, you do. All right. Well, glad that you were able to come on then and, and talk through all this because this, you know, it as we said, it's been an ongoing topic that we've been interested in over the years and and very interested to see the next steps that you published here in this research. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be on. Yes, thank you very much. All right, Glenn, so do you have some classes coming up you want to talk about? I do. One of the ones that I have available will be in the Southern California area, Irvine, California. And that is the Practical Answers for Challenging Questions in the Courtroom. That's the class I teach with yes. Carrie Hall and Brendan Max, the defense attorney. And we are teaching that May 6th through the 8th. And Irvine, California, sign up for that at ronsmithandassociates.com. I'll be putting others up here uh, in, the, in the new year. But for now, I also have some webinars at evolveforensics.com. Those are in March and April. I'm, I'm going to try to come to that one in Irvine. We've talked about this before, but you know, fingers crossed I can we can work my schedule to make that, it out to that that'll one. That'll be awesome. That'll be good, yeah. good we'll time. hit the magic castle. Absolutely. And for me, I'll have more details out here soon, but uh, you should have an exclusion class available in April. And so just keep an ear out here on the podcast from as soon as it's available. I'll, I'll tell you guys how to uh, look that up and how to sign up for that class. All right. With that, let's uh, wrap things up. So any questions or comments, or you just want to say hey to me or Glenn, send us emails, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. I mentioned our website and our Patreon page earlier. It's uh, doubledippodcast.com. We'll get you to, uh, to all of that. The opinions expressed in the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, uh, we'll wrap it up and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks for having me, guys. 